All right, we're still Job 31, Job's list of sins. When I'm, when I, I got to tell you, when, when I mapped out this class, I did not put myself for four weeks dealing with the list of sins. All right, um, chapter 31 is where we are. Matt, can you start at verse 16, 16 through 23? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from, from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. So there's another one of those self-imprecatory phrases. If I have sinned against God and, and my neighbor in these ways, then may this horrible thing happen to me. And I'm not going to dwell on the issue here is obviously uh, neglect of those who are in need. And he talks about his generosity in giving food and clothes to people who needed it and providing for people. You even hear in verse 18 that uh, it seems like Job had adopted some orphans or fostered at least some orphans in their time of need. And so this is somebody who examines himself, looks at his life, and says, I've not been guilty of neglecting those who are in need, which is the implication or the accusation of his friend's worldview. The heart of the matter, though, because we've talked about this, this sin a little bit before, what is at the heart, what is at the root of that particular sin? If that's the, if that's the fruit, we say, you know, fruit of the spirit are, and then we list all these good things. What is the cause? What's the trunk of the tree? If the fruit is neglect of the needy, if the fruit is a lack of generosity, it's uh, Dale, would you read 24 and 25? If I put my trust in gold or set to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, if the fortune in my hands had gained, you got the fortune my hands what what prevents people or what from being generous what causes people to neglect the needy greed greed it's it's not it's not that they don't have enough to give away that's what we like to tell ourselves. What we like to tell ourselves is, I don't have enough to be generous. The real problem is, I feel like I ha don't have enough. I don't believe I have enough to be generous. The number of times we say, when I have more, I will do such and such. I mean, I'd have enough to give away if I got a nickel for every time I thought that. <laughs> Uh, this greed is the heart of the problem. And so he tells us that we should be very careful about putting our confidence in treasures. Kate, while I'm talking, would you turn to Matthew 6? 
Greed is one of those, those sins that uh, worms its way inside of us and we are living out of the fruit of that greed in a lot of different ways and we don't even see it. We, we have all kinds of rational reasons why we're not going to be generous. We have all kinds of explanations we can give for why it makes sense that we would neglect the needy. But it's at its core, it is very often simply this greed. And Jesus has powerful things to say about this. Matthew 6, remember this is the, we're in the Sermon on the Mount when we're in Matthew 6. Okay, verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where you, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You notice what he did not say. He did not say, don't have treasures on earth. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say wealth is bad. What it says is laying up. Well, what's, what's in that? Well, that's where your security comes from. That's where your hope and your confidence are in. That's what you're trusting in. That's what you believe is going to give you the power to overcome the next difficulty you're going to face. Why am I not worried about the next financial crisis and this this uh, uh, recession that's going to overtake us. Well, I'm not worried because I have lots of treasures stored up. Ooh, that's a bad plan. Bad plan. Do not lay up for yourself these treasures on earth. That's why the problem with the young ruler is, is not that he had the riches. It's that he couldn't fathom being satisfied with a life where he gave them away. God doesn't call everybody to give it all away. But God looks at the people who genuinely do not believe life could be good without it and calls them to give it away because it's killing them. It's leading them to death. And so this confidence that we put in the world's treasures is sinful. And it's not just that it's wrong because God's law is not just about arbitrary right and wrong. It's not good for us. Why is it not good to lay up for yourself treasures on earth? What are you going to do when they're gone? They're fleet. They can be burnt up in a moment. Someone can steal them. You can make a bad investment and lose them. You can be betrayed by a business partner. You can, everything in your life can be burnt down. <laughs> Job's situation. You can have a tornado followed by a flood, followed by an earthquake, followed by, I don't know what, just a big rock. Everything can be taken away from you. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with the everything. It means you're putting yourself at great risk if you lay up for yourself those kinds of treasures. And it's not just material things. We do it with all sorts of things. We do it with power and with reputation and with influence and relationships and family. You see a lot of mothers do this with their children. I know y'all have seen this and it's something that people wrestle with is you're laid up. What's going to make you look back at your life and say it's satisfied is that all these children turned out okay. Is that really a safe place to lay up 
your hope and your treasure? No, that's, that's dangerous. Again, nothing wrong. Family and children, they're, all of it. These are all good things. They are not sufficient for the struggle. They cannot help you in your deepest hour of need. And so don't lay them up. Questions about that? And there are two of the easiest ways to tell if we're really committed. And this is tough because you can say exactly what I'm about to say and take it from a legalistic perspective. Remember what we said last week? There's always ways for sinners to abuse a principle. But one of the ways where we can really tell how committed we are to God is our time and our checkbook. I guess we shouldn't say checkbook anymore because nobody writes checks. But you know what I mean. Our money and our time. They're two finite resources, two of the most clearly finite resources in our lives. Every one of us is keenly aware that we don't have all the time in the world and we don't have all the money in the world. No matter how much we have, we see that they're finite. And so our ability to give those things over to God, time or money, is a real tangible reflection of what we believe about what matters, of what kinds of treasures we're storing up. Yes, that can be abused and turned into legalism, where people whose hearts from God think as long as they tithe and as long as they go to church every single Sunday, they're fine with God. I get it. Don't do that. But that's not the alternative. All right, the next sin. Uh, Nick, will you read 24 to 28? If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, through 28? Yes. This also would be in iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. So this one is shifting that trust of wealth into its pure underlying form, which is idolatry. Um, Kiss, blowing a kiss, offering a kiss, is an act of worship in uh, the ancient Near East. And uh, remember those verses like in 1 Kings where it talks about Elijah says he's alone and God says, no, you're not. There are 7,000 who have not kissed Baal. It's an act of worship. It's an indication of where the heart is. And so Job says that had he been guilty of that, had he been guilty of being an idolater, he would have been worthy of this judgment. And one of the easiest ways for a wealthy man like Job to be guilty of that would be through his wealth, would be to put that above all else. And so that's why Job connects all of these things, the lack of generosity, the heart of greed, and now idolatry. They are always connected for a person who's not, you know, wealth may not be the temptation to idolatry for you. It could be family or relationships or one of these other things, reputation or power or control. For Job, the, the strong suggestion of his comforters was that it is his wealth, his wealth that he was willing to get by ill-gotten gains and that he put his confidence in that and that had become an idol and he said that would be worthy of condemnation but that is not 
That is not the case here. That's not what happened. We'll see in the Isaiah passage today the two places that we go first in times of trouble when we are not walking closely with God is we go to ourselves and then we go to idols. And we're always in the mix. And it's only when we realize, okay, I know I can't do this. What can I turn to? Well, I can turn to wealth. I can turn to reputation, power, control, relationships, manipulation, whatever else to save me. The government. Right? That, is, that is absolutely the role that the government loves to play in people's lives, is to make you think you cannot provide for yourself. Aren't you glad we're here? Is another one to add to the, the list that you just described? Would it be... Uh like sophistication, so education mm -hmm. level, maybe that's part of the reputation one, white collar, blue collar type of thing. I think that's right. I think that would go in reputation, but I think that's an important distinction is I can get by, uh, I mean, look at me, who wouldn't want to help me in a time of need? Uh, yeah. And, and the, that is part of the reason why people who are uh, more driven by value, this is a sin that we have to look at very closely. Are we providing for people, giving to people, being generous to people because we're doing that as unto the Lord? Or are we doing it out of fear that one day we might need them to help us back? And we want to build all these alliances and we want to build up all of these, you know, we want to be the Godfather where everybody owes us just a small favor so that in, in a time of trial, I know who I can reach out to to knock a few people off, or just as an example. Kathy, will you read 29 and 30? I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him. I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. So this is vindictiveness. Oh, this one's tough. Because these people, in a sense, do deserve it. These are people who've done wrong. These are people who are rightly labeled as enemies. And there is this sense of Happy, happiness might be too strong, of rightness when they get their just desserts, when they get what's coming to them. The problem is um, we want them to get what they deserve for their <coughs> offense against us. But vengeance belongs to the Lord. Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. Wait a minute. He commits adultery with this woman, he tells a bunch of lies, he gets her husband killed, so now there's a, a woman who herself is an adulterer, who's pregnant with a child that's not her husband's, there's a child who's not going to have a father, because he's also murdered this guy, and you're saying against God only have you sinned? That's an important point. <laughs> it's, 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 it's the comparison. If we want to compare the level of offense of their sin against a holy God versus the level of their offense against us, there is no comparison. It doesn't mean we're not wronged. It doesn't mean people can't sin against us. But if you want to play the comparison game of who gets to get in line first to exact vengeance, you, there's a massive gap between where God is and where you are. What Jesus calls us to do is to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. What Jesus calls us to do is to turn the other cheek. What he calls us to do is to give them our cloak and our tunic as well. What Jesus calls us to do is to walk the extra mile with them. And we don't like those things. We don't. We don't want them to have that kind of mercy. 
And what do we need to do when we feel that way? Because we will all feel that way. We need to go reread the book of Jonah. <laughs> we need to reread Jonah and ask ourselves, are we being as blind to God's mercy as Jonah was? Uh, vindictiveness will eat you up. If God, who is that offended, perfectly holy God, is that offended by their sin, and he sends the sun and the rain on those evildoers, he waters their gardens too. He provides employment and sustenance for them. He keeps them safe from danger far more often than falling into it. He does that for his enemies. And we're going to be vindictive toward ours. He shows mercy and patience to, to us who say we love God and follow God and then sit in worship and long to be anywhere else. Or who say we want to walk with Jesus as long as Jesus doesn't want me to be nice to this person. <laughs> and God has mercy and patience and forgiveness for that. Questions about vindictiveness? All right. <laughs> All right. When you see people that are just rotten to the core, right? You know? Hard one. Yeah. I think that's why so often Paul begins a line of thought with how we once were. Because what we tend to do when we compare ourselves to other people is compare how we are now, and really a better version of that. <laughs> and, and what we really ought to be comparing is how we once were to how they are now. Because the difference between those two is God's mercy, not anything of our own doing. Uh, Andrew, 31 and 32. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with the sin? has not lodged in the street, I have opened my doors to the traveler. Thank you. The traveler, the stranger, were, they, when they came to Job's home, they experienced hospitality. The opposite of hospitality is the sin of meanness. Uh, we think of meanness in a lot of different ways, but as a technical term, a good way to remember the sin of meanness is the opposite of hospitality. And... Again, Jesus makes it so clear the point of us providing that hospitality, the motivation of us having hearts that are hospitable, hearts that are willing to receive people and to, to feed people in spirit. Greed keeps us from feeding people in body. We're not going to give them money or food. But meanness is the sin that keeps us from feeding people in spirit. There's a great, was, uh, I have my challenges with Rosaria Butterfield and some of her books and things, but she wrote a book on hospitality 
and this concept that she calls radical hospitality. And there's a lot in there that is good and challenging for us to hear because one of the points that she makes is that we tend to think of hospitality in terms of inviting over our friends and feeding our friends in spirit, who of course, because they're our friends, feed us back in spirit. But the biblical concept of hospitality is feeding in spirit those who cannot feed you back. It's, it's the conversation with the awkward person that you don't enjoy talking to, but they really need it. It's the conversation on the subject in which you have little interest, but it's important to the other person who's speaking. It's, it's the, the friendship and the warmth of the person who is lonely because they isolate themselves. And you say, well, you chose to isolate yourself. Fine. No, no. Hospitality is drawing them in. It's exactly where we started in, our, in the prayer this morning of we can imagine God casting out on the basis of how we behave. But that's not what God does, is it? He draws in and draws near. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to draw in and draw near those who are far off, the alien and the stranger, even to the point of our enemy. And when we won't do it, that's the sin of meanness. And Jesus tells us that it's really important that we be hospitable in that sense of the term. Hospitable when it's inconvenient. Hospitable when you don't get paid back for it. Because... What does he say in Matthew 25? And they said, Lord, when were you hungry and we gave you food? Or when were you thirsty and we gave you drink? And he says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. That service is unto him. That hospitality where you think you're not being paid back, you're not being paid back in earthly treasures. You're being paid back in heavenly treasures. You're storing up for yourself exactly the thing that Jesus tells us to pursue. Um, that type of hospitality is really critical in the Christian life. Questions about that? Last week, y'all had all kinds of things to say. Rosaria Butterfield. She was a liberal university professor, lesbian activist who was radically converted by God. And uh, because of her love for that community prior to her conversion, God has given her a really generous dose of wisdom and clarity around community and what it looks like to build communities and what hurting people need. Uh, good book. What is that book called? Gospel comes with the, a house. the Gospel Comes with a House Key. Thank you. All right. Uh, Crystal, can you read 38 through 40? My land oh, Crystal, I'm sorry. Hold on. Will you read 33 and 34? I'm skipping. <laughs> 33, 34. What good would it do if Job publicly were all of these great things, but privately was hiding 
grievous sin, exactly the kinds of sin he's claiming to be innocent of. Well, it would do him no good. He would deserve exactly the same judgment from God. In fact, he would have added sin upon sin because now he would have the sin of hypocrisy. The sin of of claiming to be about one thing, claiming to have one set of commitments, but in private, in reality, having another. Being afraid of having your sin exposed is not the same thing as hating sin. That's a real tough one for us. And, And it's not just one of those things. It's like so many of the other things we're talking about. It's not just that it's wrong. It's not just that it's wrong to be afraid of having your sin exposed rather than hating sin. It's that it can't do you any good. It ultimately won't be good enough. You'll, at some point, you will get caught or you will stop caring. All of us have seen this in the lives of friends. A lot of us saw this in college where they did not believe they were just doing what their parents or their church or society wanted them to do. And then they get to a breaking point and say, ah, it's too hard. I'm tired of pretending. And then they swing wildly the other direction. That's exactly what should happen. If you think that your holiness, doing what is right, can actually be powered by your own desire, you're doomed. (laughs) Holiness is powered by the strength of God. The power of God is the only thing that can make you holy. More of God, not less. Fear of man can't get you there. Fear of man can get you there in short bursts and fool you into thinking that you're doing okay and it is a house of cards and it will all come crumbling down. That's what will happen. Job, for his part, speaks of this harmony between his every area of his life. I mean, that, that really should cause us to ask ourselves, questions. Where in life do I act out of line with the areas of life where I think I act in a generally godly way? Um, One of my clients, I always have to give a hard time because he will very often use the phrase when he's talking about making a decision at work that affects somebody He says, it's just business. You don't take it personally. And I say, yes, but is it business done to the glory of God? Is it business done in a godly way for a godly purpose? Because that is completely consistent with the rest of your life and your testimony. But this idea that I get to build a wall around my time at work and say different rules apply here, that's hypocrisy. What we should want to see is harmony outside of our homes and within our homes. You can always tell the dads when you're just at a restaurant and you're watching the families. I'm a big people watcher. And you can always tell the dads who have nothing to do with the discipline of their children at home. They're the ones that are making the biggest scene and freaking out the most about the discipline in public. They are. They're the ones that every single thing the child does in public has to be loudly corrected, demonstrably corrected. Why? 
Well, because it's embarrassing to them. At home, it's too much work to deal with it. They don't have to deal with it. But suddenly they get in public and now their reputation is on the line and we have to really make a show of what an involved dad I am at this point. And it's sad. You can sit, you, we, you, you see it a lot at Disney World. <laughs> because Disney World's where you really put some money into this experience and dad's a little bit on edge that everybody's having enough fun per dollar at this experience. But that's what you see. And that, that type of hypocrisy, those situations reveal a kind of hypocrisy in us. Uh, they, they can help bring it to light. Job had harmony between the areas of his lives, and that's what we all should be striving for. It, it doesn't mean that your behaviors and the way you speak are all identical between groups. You're never, Andrew and I were talking about this recently, you're never gonna talk with and around your high school friends the way you talk around the people that you only met at church and that's the context of your relationship. More casual, more familiar, whatever. But what are the principles? What are the beliefs? What's the worldview from which your speech comes? I will be goofier with you all at my house than on a Sunday morning as we go into worship. Am I being a hypocrite? No, the context matters. But if you see me do things in my house that are completely inconsistent with the testimony that happens here, that's hypocrisy. And it happens, and it's a sin of which I have to repent, and I hope you forgive. That doesn't make it okay. That lack of harmony should always be alarming to us. And it's a good opportunity for self-examination. When we walk away from those conversations, why didn't I say the thing that I know in my spirit needed to be said? Or why did I go along with the thing that I know in my spirit I should have resisted or walked away from? What, what's the source of that hypocrisy because you can't just deal with hypocrisy on its own you have to deal with the underlying sin to create the harmony and then the hypocrisy goes away questions about hypocrisy just a quick comment yeah it, it, it's sort of like um the chief virtue in the non-christian world in some settings might be multiculturalism which basically means um relinquishing any sort of principle to whatever culture you're in and that's seen as a virtuous thing to do. Yeah. Um, that's just an observation based on what you were saying. Yeah. I was thinking, too, you know, there's, there's the well-known statistics around pastor's kids and missionary kids that leave the faith. And a major factor in that is their perception of hypocrisy in the lives of their parents. That's a great reason to avoid hypocrisy. Uh, even that's not enough to overcome sin and hypocrisy. It's the power of God. And then hypocrisy also becomes an excuse. We've all heard that in the cult. Why don't people go to church? It's filled with hypocrites. So is your bank. So is the post office. So is the grocery store. Whatever community that you trust in that you think is better than the church, you want to go in and start digging around for hypocrites? We'll find some. So it's a little bit of a red herring. They are correct to identify that hypocrisy is bad. And, and 
the, the harmony between different areas of life is desirable. But let's not kid ourselves and act like the Christian church is the first place where people ever practice hypocrisy. We should want to weed that out too. That in some point should be a place of connection. Yeah, hypocrisy is bad. And only the power of God can overcome it. Just a, yeah, open-mindedness is probably a better way to say what this chief virtue is that I'm getting at. It's like you're not open-minded and you're being hypocritical. Yeah, it's, it's, it's even... I think the, the reason you're still wrestling with terms is it's even a little more insidious than that. It's, it's, you're not allowed to believe anything that doesn't affirm what they believe. Right. And so it, it's, it starts with just be open-minded. But if you're open-minded and you listen to what they have to say and you think it's godless nonsense, <laughs> Then it moves to, well, don't be judgmental. Live and let live. And if you say, I'm not your judge. God is. If you want to be a Christian, there are some things you're going to have to change. But hey, pagan's going to pagan. You be you. That's not good enough either. And now it's, you better fly the pride flag on your house. Yeah. Right. That, that's what happens. And it, so it is even more insidious than just you can't be so principled. They want you to be utterly principled. It just has to be their principles. While they yell at us that we're closed-minded. In, in the struggle I have is, you know, in my, in my heart and in my brain, I'm going, uh, that's not true, that's fake, that's false, that's a lie, you're believing a lie, blah, 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 this is going on in here, and then at the same time I'm praying, going, what should I say, how should I say it, and then oftentimes I just don't say anything, you know, like Thumper's mother, <laughs> right? So it's, it's, it's a struggle, and I feel like, and this is a feel, that I, I feel like as Jesus said, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say when you need to say it. And then I, but I walk away and I go, God. I didn't say it. <laughs> what was it? Yeah, yeah. It definitely, it requires preparation. It, it requires some, some, some groundwork. We have to be prepared for all sorts of those conversations. And I will say, this is one of the few areas, by God's common grace, where modern trends in counseling and therapy and community and leadership I think are very helpful because one of the big trends right now is all about asking questions. And I do think in a lot of those situations, we would be better off asking more questions. What we tend to do is either say nothing or make definitive statements that may be factually true but require too many underlying facts that that person doesn't share to be useful. And so, uh, and, and this, the whole concept of presuppositional apologetics, for example, starts with deconstructing a person's worldview. But it's not by you tearing it down brick by brick. It's by you asking a question. What's the brick below that? And making them say that out loud. Well, what's the brick below that? And what's the brick below that? 
And eventually they're getting to the point where they realize their own hypocrisy, that all of this is self-contradictory, that really their whole life is just based on how they feel and what they think is right. And if you can get a person to say that out loud, my worldview is I do what I think is right. I am my God. Great. That's the best evangelism you could ever do. You made somebody admit out loud who their God is because they would have denied that all along. And you got them to admit, I'm my God. And somebody can say that. They can say it with kind of a ha-ha. They can say it defiantly. I'm the boss of me, master of my own destiny. And when they go home and they're thinking by themselves on the drive back, nobody wants to really believe that. Nobody wants to believe that their life is utterly about them. They want to live that way, but they want to live that way without having to examine the thought. And so it's, I, I think we can get a lot of value by learning questions and thinking through the kinds of questions that help people say out loud what they really believe. And if you make a rebuttal statement, you have to back it up. And then it, and then it becomes an argument. Whereas if you're just asking questions... That's right. And it's, it's, and it's not that we should never make statements. It's that when we lead with statements, we're going to have to back it up. And then we're going to be defending the thing that we're using to back it up. And that's going to require backing up one more level and defending that. You've found that before where you've gotten into these debates with people where you realize, ah, we don't even believe. I just got into a conversation with somebody who calls themselves a Christian and goes to church. And so I just launched into the aughts. And now I realize they don't even believe the Bible is the perfect word of God and the only rule for faith and practice. Ah, I got, how am I going to get back to here? And so the asking the questions and helping unpack and then pointing them to God's word. Often the first step is not even asking the question, it's just repeating back what they said. That's right. If you can get them to say... Uh, yep. And that is the question. So, uh, oftentimes the question is, am I hearing you when you say? Yeah. Well, does that mean, give them the logical implication. So does that mean that if you do something, it is automatically right? If, 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 if right and wrong are based on what you believe and feel is right and wrong, that means if you do something, it is always right? No, I do stuff wrong. Well, how do you know they're wrong? Just questions, and questions, questions, questions. if you keep questions. asking questions, then, you know, Andrew's point is, they can't say you're not open-minded because you are asking, <laughs> asking questions. Yeah, questions. and again, let's, let's, give the, let's give the very important caveat of you can do this perfectly and some people will still not be nice to you. Some people will still accuse you of being closed-minded. I mean, it's amazing how you could do nothing but ask five gracious questions in a row. And some would say, that guy was such a jerk, was just raking me over the coals. And to Dale's point, no, you were raking yourself over the coals by your own speech. You, you, right. yeah, if we, well, we can do a lot of good by speaking up in times when we're afraid to speak. But we also need to be very thoughtful about what we're speaking. And we need to make sure, again, to this whole point of Job, we need to make sure we're hearing what they're saying. Are, are we lecturing them 
on something that isn't even really the point. And it's the point of that book y'all read, which is all you're doing is putting a stone in their shoe. You're putting a stone in their shoe that, that's going to kind of nickel at them after the conversation. Yeah, that's what I mean by the drive back right. is you need to be okay just letting their absurdity or hypocrisy hang in the air and trust that the Spirit of God, that's why, uh, to, to Sally's point, that's why you're praying the whole time, is that the Spirit of God will aggravate that stone. Yeah. Pam? I was just thinking a lot of it has to do with how you ask those questions because you can't be like you're grilling somebody, right? Or you're asking them with an arrogance about you, you know? Yeah, as long as both things are true. One is, yes, you must be sincere. You're not trying to provoke. It's not this gotcha or will actually. And I want every person in this room to recognize that when you do that and even when you do it the gracious way and the right way, there's still going to be a whole bunch of people who treat you like you did it all wrong and you were mean. Don't always think that because they responded poorly, you did it wrong. That is the first evaluation. What could I have done better? Absolutely. But the second is, was there any way that person was going to receive well the word of God in that moment? Yeah. Sometimes no. Uh, all right, uh, Craig, can you do 38 through 40? If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its shield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. So again, you hear the imprecatory, let this self-imprecatory, let this happen to me if this is true. And Job says, I've not been guilty of, for lack of a better term, exploitation. There are ways that we can use good things. We can use resources inappropriately. We can use them for our own gain to the destruction of the resource we've been given. We're not stewards of the land when we strip mine the land. We're not stewards of the land when we dump our toxic waste all over the land. We're not stewards of, I will give you a moment to think through in your own life, resources that God has given you that you could use for entirely selfish and destructive purposes. That's exploitation. And Job says, I'm not guilty of that. Um, this was so much of the laws and regulations and rules in the Old Testament that seem weird to us about letting the land lie dormant to have its Sabbath and recover. And, and even about tithing, this idea that I would give away some portion of what I have and what I need. So many of these rules are about proving with your mouth and your hands that you believe in your head God will provide. That if you do things God's way, it will be enough. And again, that's not just about stuff. That's about family. That's about all sorts of areas of life. If I do it God's way, it will be enough. We say, well, I need to do it God's way, plus I got to hedge my bets, these other I got to do it God's way. Plus, I just need a little bit of support here on the, if we do it God's way. And that's when we become exploiters of things and of people. We can use relationships, not for the good of the other person and ourselves benefiting from that. A win-win. It's the, we look for the win-lose. I mean, it'd be nice if you also won, but we're going to make sure that I get what I need out of this, whether it's land or resources or people. 
Derek Thomas says, our lives are to be governed in every part by the rule of God's word. That's why this chapter is worthy of such slow progress, <laughs> is marching through as Job moves his attention from facet to facet to facet of his life and says, in that area of my life, was I honoring or dishonoring to God? Did I live with faith or did I live with uh, uh, fear and pride? And he ends this list of sins by calling on God to give him a fair hearing. He, he wants the chance to clear the record with regards to the allegations that were made against him and the allegations that are implied by his suffering. He admits he's a sinner, but he's not a defiant sinner. He's not a hypocritical sinner. He, he's not pleased with his sin. He is a person who sins. His life is not defined by that sin. And if you were looking for a way to uh, know, and you really have to read between the lines on this one because it's, it's tricky Hebrew interpretation right here. But do you want to know how Job, how we know Job is done making his case, how he said all that he has to say, and the whole thing is clear before God? Verse 40, the words of Job are ended. That's it. It's his whole case. His whole case is made. And he wants to go into God's presence. And remember back several chapters, he recognized that probably the only way this works out is that he has a mediator. But he wants to go into God's presence and be vindicated. The only thing that Job will say in the rest of this book is, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Repentance is the only thing Job has left to say in this book. And it comes on the heels of Job cataloging. He's a righteous man, just like the beginning of the book said, and just like the end of the book said. But you can start to feel, working your way through this chapter, that Job thinks he's a self-righteous man. <laughs> that Job is starting to lose perspective. While he acknowledges in word that he is not perfect he, and that God is, he seems to forget how big that gulf is. We tend to think of God up here at this level and really righteous human beings Sometimes we put ourselves on that list. Yeah, there's a gulf here. And then here's me. Uh, and here's you. <laughs> and we make this gulf larger than this gulf. 
And if you want to know what Job's actually guilty of in the book of Job, it's this. This is what he's going to have to repent of. He identifies more with the holiness of God than he does with the sin of his fellow man. But it seems like he cares so much about them agreeing with him. I mean, they've had this argument and going back and forth and back and forth, and I'm, I'm pretty stubborn, and I want my friends to see it my way yep. and have them admit it. But at some point, I'd be like, all right, you, you don't. And he does that a little bit in that he writes them off uh, in, in chapter 30, where he basically says, you guys are never going to see this can't be pleased. I'm done with you. And now he says, I'm making my case before God. God will get me. God will understand me. God knows that I'm righteous. God knows I don't deserve this stuff. And it's really challenging in Job because that is both true. God does know that he's righteous and he's not getting this stuff because of his sin. So Job is right about that. And Job is very wrong about this. Job sees himself is closer in kind to God than to his fellow man. And even though none of Job's behaviors up to this point have suggested that, he has been generous, he has not exploited the land, he's, do, he's been hospitable, he's done all these things, now we find the one area of Job's life where you can get him to think too highly of himself. And it is his reputation. It's his reputation. That's the thing where Job says, no, them's fighting words. And fights with his friends. Well, his friends' arguments are all wrong. His friends, so he's able to dismiss them. But then that puffs Job up just enough that then he turns to God and says, you know it's true. <laughs> and God very patiently uh, has some things to say. First through Elihu, and then God will speak directly to Job a little later on. Um, all he's got left to do is some repentance, which help us interpret these protests rightly. Questions about that? Next week, we move on to chapter 32. <laughs> We're done. Thanks.